This is episode 332, dated Friday, November 3rd, 2023. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. And hello, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 332, dated Friday, November 3rd, 2023. With us, we have Peter Alchel from Coos Bay, Oregon. I'm getting the knack of it, Peter. You're uh, doing great. Thank and you. How, how's it going over there? Well, we are at the beginning of the rainy season, November 1st, and it's beautiful outside. 70 degrees and sunny. So ah. you figure it out. Yeah. We've been cold most of the week in the forties, dropping to the twenties. It's been unbelievable. Yeah. As our guest, to, as our guest, as our guest can testify because he lives in this general neck of the woods, but we'll introduce our guest in a couple of minutes after I thank some people for making it possible for in perspective to be made available. We start out with the media outlets. Thank you for airing us when you do. Raymond Gay, our executive producer and editor, thank you for helping to make our show a quality show to listen to afterward. We appreciate that. Also, Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place, Chatline, thank you for posting our programs on greeting door number 15. And, of course, Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions, thank you for archiving our shows on my website. To find them, go to www.brancoevents.com. Arrow down until you get to In Perspective Podcasts. Click on those, and you will see our archived shows from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. A couple of other shout-outs I would like to give. First, to Linda Lambert. Thank you for listening to our program. We appreciate it. And also to Nancy, our host for today. Nancy, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We appreciate that. No problem. Today... Given that Halloween was on Tuesday, it just happens to work out that we're going to talk about the paranormal. And a good person for that is a gentleman that I've been very familiar with over the years. He is a local brand manager for a radio station here on the South Coast here in Massachusetts. He's also the producer of his own show called Spooky South Coast. I'm very pleased and honored to introduce Tim Weisberg. Tim, welcome. How are you? Tim. Oh, Tim, you may have. How about I unmute? That'll probably work a lot better that way. There you are, Tim. How are you? <laughs> and here I'm spectacular, as I like to say. Yeah. Welcome to the show, know, Tim. It's, it's quite possible. Thank you for having me. And uh, if I did bring any ghosts or gremlins with me, I apologize. Well, you have no control over that, as far as I know. I mean, well, we'll find that out during the show once you talk about the subject. But <laughs> anyhow, you would think that I would, but I don't. Okay. I have had the pleasure and honor over the past, was it 10 to 12 years now, Tim, that you've had Spooky South Coast on the air? Actually, we are going to celebrate our 18th anniversary in January. So uh, our little little baby show has become a full-grown adult. Tell us about your show. So we talk about the paranormal, but we, we, we look at it from a variety of perspectives. So it might be, you know, something super local, talking about local haunts and local ghost stories, or it might be some reports that we have gotten recently around the area or anything that's national or international, talking about the paranormal TV shows. We really kind of cover it all because we've been doing it for so long and we have, you know, seen the ebbs and flows of what goes on in the paranormal world. 
when we first started, we thought we were going to be lucky to get a couple of people tuning in on Saturday nights to hear us talk about local ghost stories. And now the show has become something that gets downloaded across the world and has been listened to millions of times. What prompted you to get interested in the paranormal? I always had experiences as a kid. And then my aunt and uncle purchased a haunted home in Halifax when I was about 11 years old or so. And I had like deeper experiences there and they did as well. And it took a little while for them to open up and for everybody to talk about it. But then once they did, I said, okay, now it's kind of taken off the, the blinders a bit or it's taken off the, the leash and I could go full bore into looking into this and researching it. And then in 2004, when ghost hunters came on TV, that's when I realized, wait a minute, like everyday people can get involved in this. This is a show about a couple of plumbers from Rhode Island who do this. And that's when I kind of started getting into more of the research and investigation aspect of it. So it became less about having experiences and more about trying to figure out why experiences happen. So talk Give about some, some of the experiences you had in, as a child in that uh, haunted place in, what did you say, Nova Scotia? It was actually Halifax, Madison. Oh, it's sorry. inside what we call the, we call it the Bridgewater Triangle. But when I was younger, I would see, you know, all these things happening, like what they call old hag syndrome. You know, you're laying in your bed and there's a shadow of an old woman on the wall. It looks like she's reaching out for you. Or I had some strange things that would happen that, you know, my parents still say to this day didn't really happen, but I remember them happening in my mind, like waking up and being in a different neighborhood, like walking one neighborhood over from my house, but not knowing how I got there, things like that. And when they bought the haunted house, I really hadn't had anything go on for a number of years. And I was sleeping over there and I was laying on the floor of my cousin's room. And I heard now he was already acting strange before we went to bed. He was pushing his closet door shut, insisting that he was just doing his exercises. But as I came to find out later, he would do that every night because the door would fly open on its own in the middle of the night. But I was laying on the floor and I saw some shadows going down the hall and I heard like a rattling sound. So I assumed that that was the dog coming down the hallway. And then I felt the dog at my feet. So I said, well, it's not her. She's already here. And that's when I knew that there was something weird going on. But I didn't really bring anything up. It wasn't until we had an experience where we were all in the living room and we heard the bulkhead doors slamming shut. We ran down into the basement to see if somebody had come in. And this happened a couple of times. And on one of the times we went down there, we actually saw these heavy steel bulkhead doors slamming up and down on their own. And that's when I looked at my cousin and he turned to me and he goes, yeah, our house is haunted. And that's when the family kind of then started opening up to me. And then we were able to discuss it a little bit more in depth. And how did, how did, so how did that, you talked about, you started doing the research about that and that sort of prompted you, it sounds like, to, to get into the paranormal stuff. What happened next? In other words, you've seen all these experiences. How did you research it? So for me, it was about going to the library, reading books. At the time, the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown series was on TV. They were advertising that. And I said, I got to get my hands on some of those books. My uncle had this habit of uh, a different uncle, not the one that lived in the haunted house, had this habit of getting like the first book from the Time Life series, the ones that they sent you free and then never ordering the rest of the series. And so he had the first book kicking around the house and I read that. And then that led to me looking for more of those books. And then I realized that all of those books were citing other books. So I would make a little list and then go to the library and say, you know, do you have these books? And this is in the days before they had these library networks where they could get all kinds of other books. So I would just read whatever was in the library. Luckily, I mean, I guess maybe not luckily, but we moved a lot when I was a kid 
from town to town. And so I got to go to a fresh library with a fresh set of books each time and be able to read a little bit more. But while other kids were like in the sports section of books or, you know, the choose your own adventure books, here I was in the, the zeros and the one hundreds of the Dewey Decimal System, you know, reading about, you know, uh, chariots of chariot of the gods and other books that, you know, had come out in the seventies and the eighties with all these, you know, fanciful paranormal theories. And what did you, what did you sort of learn? I mean, during all this research, you've had these physical experiences. What were some of your, what were some of your conclusions that you came up with? The, the really, the only thing that I learned from reading those books was that this stuff happens to a lot of people. And I got more of a historic basis for some of it, but it, it didn't really prepare me for what to expect if I went out there actually looking for it because in the way that it's presented in those books, and I guess it made sense at the time because you're trying to get people to take this subject matter seriously, it was that, you know, everybody had to be a scholar or a doctor or a scientist that was being cited in this. So to me, it was a very heady thing that I wouldn't even have known where to begin that process. How do you become a, a professor of psychology? How do you become a demonologist? Like, what are these terms? What do they mean? You know, you, there's, this is not a career path that I can go down. And then it was later on through the Internet and through the show Ghost Hunters that you realize, wait a minute, there are a lot of everyday people that are doing this. And that's when you really learn that there are no real experts. There are no real degrees in this. So it's accessible to anybody. But that also can be a double-edged sword because it also means you have a lot of people to get involved in it that have no idea what they're doing and, and don't hold themselves to any kind of any kind of academic standard. So you did, so you said you did some actual research of some of these circumstances. You started being uh-huh. a ghost hunter as it were. Talk about what that's like or what, what, how do you prepare to do something like that? So, I mean, that wasn't my intention when we started Spooky South Coast at all. I thought I was just going to be someone who interviewed people who were the people that did this. Mm-hmm. I had no intention of going out there and doing it myself. And I came from a journalist background working for the Standard Times and as a sports writer. So I, I was used to, writing about things and talking about things that I didn't do myself. You know, I covered the Patriots and the Celtics. I didn't go out there on the field or on the court and play. So I thought I was going to do the same type of approach with the paranormal. But then we brought in a co-host, Matt Moniz, who had been doing this stuff for 20 years already as an investigator. And he said, no, you're not going to sit here and armchair quarterback the paranormal. You're going to get out there and do it with us. And so he took us to a cemetery that I'm no longer allowed to, to mention by name. But he took us to a cemetery and we got our very first example of electronic voice phenomenon, which is where spirits can imprint their voices on recorded devices. We caught this strange voice that nobody heard with their own ears on our recording that seemed to have a message for us. And from there, it just it got me hooked. Like, I just wanted to get as much more of that as I could. So we went out and did more investigations and just would try to find places where we could go. We were lucky enough to know the owner of the Lizzie Borden house at the time, and she gave us a key so that we could go anytime we wanted and uh, we were able to kind of build up a, a long-term case study there. So I've been lucky enough to investigate tons of locations in multiple countries and be able to see how the paranormal happens almost on a, on a worldwide basis and realize that the ghost experiences that we can have right here on the south coast of Massachusetts are the same that people are having worldwide, and so there's got to be a reason for it. These voices that you hear electronically, are they... Because I haven't heard them yet, so I'm going to be a little ignorant on the subject for now. Are Do they sound like humans? So a lot of times what they sound like is whispery voices. It may be, in some cases, you know, barely audible. But what we do is we will run this through different audio programs that can detect, 
you know, what the range is for human speech. And you can see and visualize kind of on the, the way that it puts it out, you know, what might be ambient noise in the room, what might be actually something making a noise into the, into the microphone of the recorder. And so you kind of can already see right from the beginning what you're dealing with. But some of the stuff comes from, you know, a little bit lower than the human register. But yet when you hear it, it sounds like a human voice. So there is a lot of false positives that happen in that kind of work. You know, if you're, if you're doing an investigation and you catch something that sounds like it could be a voice, you really have to pull it apart and try to figure out what else it could be. And, and certainly if you're in the room when something happens, you have to make note of it. So if a car drives by or if you bump into something, you know, you have to make note of that. It's what we call tagging. So you want to tag that in the recording so that you know later on when you listen to it that that's explainable. But sometimes you get stuff that's really not explainable. I mean, my first time ever doing it, I thought I was going to, you know, quit the paranormal right then and there because I was walking around the Millicent Library in Fairhaven in the port in the room where they have portraits of the Rogers family. And they say that the eyes of the portraits will follow you around. So I'm walking around with my recorder asking, you know, what is your name? Can you tell me your name? And you leave a space on the recording and then you go back and you listen. And when I went back and listened, I thought I caught the voice of Satan himself because you hear me say, you know, what is your name? And this noise just comes through like, and I was terrified at first until I realized that I was actually really, really hungry and I was holding my recorder close to my stomach. And so I really just got my stomach gurgling. So that's when I learned, you know, that there's a lot of mistakes that can be made in this work and you have to be careful about uh, what you're calling evidence. So I have, uh, before, before I go there, talk about uh, Lizzie Borden now. If I remember correctly, there was a lot of bad stuff that went on that house, murders and stuff. So I'm assuming that there was repercussions from that stuff that went on in, in that household, in that house. Yeah. So the Andrew and Abby Borden were both killed there on August 4th, 1892. And so a lot of people feel that what we're dealing with in the paranormal world when it comes to ghosts is just energy. It's energy that is not linked to a physical body, but yet somehow has a human perspective to it, a human connection to it. And so one of the ideas is that these tragic events lead to an imprinting of that energy on the location. So because tragedy is such a strong emotion, that can kind of leave a a mark on the place. And then also you have certain factors that allow for paranormal activity and energy to be recorded and amplified. So, for example, the the basement of the Lizzie Borden house is Fieldstone. And Fieldstone is rich in quartz, and quartz is piezoelectric. So basically what you have, and that's why we use it in electronics to record and amplify energy. So basically what you have with the Lizzie Borden house is you have this place where this horrible tragedy happened built on top of a foundation that is actually recording and amplifying the energy that's within that building. So if it is a negative thing, like two murders that happened in there that leave this mark, it's, it's being, it's basically baked into the walls of, of that house now to have this energy remain there. So how, what does this energy look like or sound like or feel like, or how do you know it's that energy and not, as you said, your stomach gurgling? Well, and that's where it gets really fascinating because it can take different forms and it can have different interactions with people. So it's it's not just a matter of it being energy on its own that's just trapped and recorded in there. There, has, there seems to be some kind of an intelligence behind it, something that can manipulate it and utilize it. So what will happen is it can be anything from some people go there and they encounter what they think is Lizzie Borden's spirit. We've actually captured what we think is her voice on tape before where, you know, you think that this is 
her trying to plead her innocence or whatever it may be. But then there's other people who go there and they have a very negative experience and it's something dark and sinister. And, and some people think that that could be Mr. Borden or it could be something that's even not human that had influence over the Borden family. So there's a, you know, there's different theories that people come up with. I kind of have experienced the gamut of all of that in all of my investigations there. But my general overarching theory on it is that I think that there's some sort of energy there that is non-human. It's what we would refer to in the paranormal as an elemental. And it's something that's been there forever and it'll be there forever. And it just feeds off of people coming in there and talking about the tragedy. So would it be safe to assume, Tim, that most of the energy that you and your colleagues discover when you do this line of work is derived from the deceased being unsettled? Well, in a lot of cases, yes, because that is going to leave a stronger energy behind. But sometimes we actually encounter energy of people that are still alive. I look, I look at it as we leave a piece of ourselves everywhere we go. A little piece of our energetic imprint is left behind everywhere we've been. But sometimes, you know, well, I mean, normally it would just dissipate. It's not going to last very long. But sometimes it will remain and it'll be something that you can still perceive and interact with. In fact, you'll hear stories about people that are like, you know, I, I saw you yesterday. I saw you. You were at the door and, you know, I was motioning for you to come in, but you didn't come in. And you say, well, like, no, I was actually three towns over all day. I was nowhere near you. But, you know, sometimes that energy can still kind of be there, even if our physical selves isn't. And I find that to be fascinating because to me, that means, you know, you can be in two places at one time. So if you listen to some of these more conservative uh, radio preachers, they talk about these ghosts as, as angels. And some of them are, are you know, sa- satanically, in, you know, angels and some are are are, are the, the better angels. How do you how does that fit into your understanding of the paranormal? So for people who do enter this field that have a spiritual mindset, you know, they look at it as some folks have discernment and they can tell the difference between what is a a demon or an angel or a ghost or a human spirit or what have you. I look at it as being somebody who is not religious and not particularly spiritual. I look at it all as that energy. So I can remove all the dogmatic labels that would be placed on it and say, I mean, listen, if this is retaining human identity and human emotion and human thought and feeling, then some ghosts are going to be jerks and they're going to be mean and they're going to be negative. Some are going to be overwhelmingly positive and loving and caring. So I think that what people might perceive as being angelic or demonic spirits could just be, you know, formerly human spirits that are of a particular disposition. So to me, it's not about putting those labels on them. If people need to do that because it's what their belief system is, then, you know, they can make it work for them. But for me, I try to look at it more from a, what's the word I'm looking for? More of a human, more of a secular. Yeah, secular, but also from a, like, I don't even want to say secular because even that implies that there, there's some religion that, that would apply into this. And I, I don't think that it has to. I think that, you know, every culture has a word for ghost. Every culture experiences ghosts. So no matter what they may believe in terms of their God or what it is they choose to worship, they still believe in this concept of uh, anyway, it's just some, some will tell you it's okay to, to worship these and it's, or, or to interact with these. And others will tell you that you have to avoid them at all costs. And I, and I don't think that either one of them is necessarily wrong. 
So when you, I, I, I'm not a, a, a very cognizant of paranormal stuff at all, but you know, in sort of reading the Stephen King books, which is not necessarily paranormal per se, you know, most of the spirits are bad, right? They're, they're, they cause trouble. They rattle the walls. They, you know, cause people to do strange things. Are you, you talked about the, the range of spirits. Have, have you experienced sort of the more kind-hearted spirits or ghosts or whatever? Yeah, I've had a lot of experiences more with positive things. I actually shook hands with what's called the shadow person. And I used to be the kind of person that would go into these investigations just looking for activity, and I would not have any problem being rude about it. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd walk in and I'd say, all right, where are you? Show yourself to me. You know, I want to know all the answers to all my questions. And I didn't, you know, it worked sometimes, and sometimes it didn't. But I was investigating the Houghton Mansion in North Adams, Massachusetts, and, and it has a lot of shadow people activity. It was a Masonic Lodge for a while. And we were in the very back section of what used to be the Masonic Lodge, kind of a secret passageway type area. And there were shadow figures that were coming down all night long. And a shadow figure, a shadow person is like a ghost, only instead of seeing a translucent, like, white figure, what you're seeing is a dark, shadowy mass. It's human in shape. And it seems to be three-dimensional, but it doesn't have any defined features. And so we're watching these things walk by us all night long, walk in a procession down the hallway. And then later on, there was just one standing by itself. And we coaxed it to come down the hallway, and I held out my hand and asked him to shake my hand. And, and this shadow person wrapped his hand around mine and began pumping my arm up and down in a handshake motion. And I just started crying because suddenly to me, this meant, you know, to use the cliche, ghosts are people too. And so I realized, like, I've been doing this the wrong way. I've basically been walk. I've been doing what's the equivalent of walking into somebody's house uninvited, getting right up into their face and yelling at them, what is your name and how did you die? And who would really want to welcome that into their home? You'd want to throw that person out and tell them they're nuts. So I changed up the way that I do things a little bit, and I, I've seen a big change. And so as such, I've dealt with a lot more positive energies. What distinguishes the shadows, as you call them, from the actual ghosts with the translucent features? What would be the difference, and why would one differ from another? So some researchers believe that a shadow person is just a a ghost that can't quite manifest so that if it had enough energy, you would actually be able to see the person that it was. I don't know that I believe that that's the case. Others think that a shadow person is an entire, entirely separate being an entirely separate species of entity. So instead of this being a human spirit that is trying to manifest and look like it did in life, this is something that never did exist in life. And it's always kind of existed this way. And I think I'm leaning kind of more toward that idea of what they might be because I've had a lot of encounters with these in a very human way, but never with them even trying to gain energy from me or trying to do something to manifest more or even indicating that they might have formerly been a person. So I think, I think maybe both are correct, but I, I would look at them in my own perspective as being two different types of entities. So I'm really interested in sort of the how and all of this. You, you mentioned you changed your strategy from sort of, you know, being the sort of abrasive, you know, guest as you use it, I'm putting words in your mouth, but sort of the abrasive guest and, you know, it's insisting information. Talk about sort of how you do this. How do you, you know, you, you think someplace is haunted, you've heard stories, I gather. How do you prepare and how do you actually do this work? 
So I'll say the way that I do it is a little bit different than how a real serious paranormal investigator would do it. Cause I don't, I don't look at myself as a, as a true investigator. I'm a researcher who also investigates. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at it more as like an ombudsman position, but somebody who is going to be on the ground, boots on the ground every weekend going out and doing these investigations, what they would do is they would get, they would go to a place that allegedly has activity, whether it be they seek it out or someone asks them to come. You will go and collect stories from people, find out exactly what they're experiencing, what's happening. You should have a good knowledge base of knowing what types of false positives you can get. So, you know, what things might happen in a home that would cause somebody to feel this way. So if people are feeling like somebody's, you know, watching them or their hair at the back of their neck is standing up, then you know that there might be some sort of an electrical issue that could mm-hmm. cause that as much as there could be a paranormal one. So you, you learn about these things as you go along. So then you would go to the house, you would look through those things, try to look for some of those false positives, take some baseline readings of the temperature and the electromagnetic field, because the idea is that when a spirit is manifesting, it manipulates the environment around it. It's, it's drawing in heat energy in order to gain energy to interact. So that's why you get a cold spot. And then when it draws in that heat energy and creates that cold spot, it's going to force the electromagnetic field to rise because now there's more energy there. So when we go in with these devices, people are like, well, how do you detect a ghost with those devices? And the answer is you don't. You can only detect the environmental changes that we think ghosts might cause. And so then you're going in with those to try to get a baseline of what everything should be. You're going to want to talk to the people that live there and interview them. And one of the questions that you need to ask, and it's uncomfortable, but you need to ask questions like, is there a history of drug use? Is there a history of drinking? What medications are you on? And you should have yourself the big book of pills that they sell, you know, online or at Barnes and Noble or whatever, so that you can look up those medications and see what some of the side effects are. And some of those side effects may be hallucinations. And that doesn't mean people aren't experiencing ghosts. It just means it's, it's, it's data you have to keep in the back of your mind for when you're going out and looking for this yourself. And then once you're armed with all of that information, then you can go in and start trying to see if you can make contact with something. When you do make contact with something, if you do, which it's a crapshoot, there's a good chance you could go in there and spend 12 hours and never have a single thing happen. doesn't mean that they're not having experiences, that the place isn't haunted. It just means it didn't happen for you on that night. You may have to go back multiple times. But then when you start getting what you think is information from the spirits, then you have to go and research in the library or the town records and see if you can verify that and link it up to anybody that might have lived in the property or might have a connection to the property or a connection to the family. And that only then can you really start to try to put together a narrative. Too many people show up, they turn on one of these devices that might allow a ghost to interact, they get what they think are answers to the questions, they start asking leading questions because they've already got the story in their mind that they want to tell, and then they're just doing what's called confirmation bias. They're just trying to get the answers that fit. You know, it's like when a sports writer goes into a locker room and asks the players after the game pointed questions that are clearly for the agenda of whatever it is that they wanted to write, you know, you, you can't do that with a paranormal investigation. You have to let the the spirits tell their own story, and all you're doing is chronicling what it is they're trying to tell you. Fascinating. So you've, you've had this talk show host, sorry, talk show for, what, 20 years, 18 years. How has your research influenced the way you do your talk show and vice versa? I think it's well certainly made us better at asking questions because we have a better understanding of what it is that people do. But I also think that it has given us having the so many experiences ourselves when we're going out looking for them, 
has given us a lot more perspective on the people who go through them without looking for them. So when I was having experiences when I was younger and didn't understand it, it never scared me. But now that I see what people go through and I can watch how other people process this, these interactions, I realize that I process it the way that I do, but other people might do it differently. So it's given me a lot more empathy for people who go through it and are taken aback by it because it does change your worldview. I mean, you think that you have something in mind about what happens to us after we die or what the world is made up of, or, you know, you might be somebody who is religious and puts all your belief in that faith, or you might be somebody who is scientific and puts all your belief in the known laws of physics. And then here you are faced with something that will rub up against what it is that you think you believe spiritually, or will rub up against what physics and science are telling us, you have to be ready to accept that. And it's a paradigm shift that not everybody's ready to handle. In your line, in your line of work, I'm sorry, Peter, I'll I'll get to you in a second. In your line of work, Tim, as you talk to people about what you do and your findings and all that you're telling us today, if you were to estimate would, how much of a majority or, or maybe not even a majority of the people that you talk with Accept what you have to tell them and how many of them feel, ah, you know what, that's just a lot of BS. I don't believe in that stuff. What do you find the public reaction is to what you do? So it's actually changed. I mean, from the time that we started doing this in 2006, it was a very small percentage of people that actually had a belief in this. And and there's Gallup polls that actually back this up. You know, we're talking about, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the population might have been believers in this stuff back then. And and I think a bigger portion of people were believers in it. They just weren't ready to admit it to somebody that was taking a poll. But now, you know, nearly 20 years later, it's changed. You know, the most recent Gallup poll, if something like 65 or 70 percent of people either had a paranormal experience or believed in some possibility of a paranormal experience, and they were open about answering that question. So I used to go to places and bring up ghosts to people, and you would see the look on their face where they're like, well, I don't know if I really believe in that. Whereas, you know, now if I walk into a place, you know, I walk into the supermarket with a T-shirt that's, you know, the Lizzie Borden house, I'm going to have everybody coming up to me and telling me about their ghost experiences. And I'm a total stranger to them. So it's really it's really changed over the last, you know, 20 years or so because of the proliferation of the paranormal in the media. And it's helped the way that the media covers it. It used to be that in, you know, the 70s, the 80s, when a lot of people were trying to get the word out there that this stuff was real. You would see these news reporters and they would always save like the, the, the paranormal story, the ghost sighting or the UFO story or whatever for, you know, the last two minutes of the newscast before the show was over. And they'd be like, and we have one final story to tell you tonight. A couple of people say they saw strange lights in the sky. Do, 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 do. And they would do that like that's how they would present it. And now we're actually having congressional hearings on the fact that military pilots are actually seeing UFOs that they can't explain in the sky. And this has become something that is, you know, they're, they're threatening to pull funding for programs if they don't reveal all that they know about these things. We have had a huge shift in the way that this is happening just in the course of my lifetime. And so that has kind of trickled down to the, to the general public. When they started, if they had told people in the 1990s or even the early 2000s all that we have learned about UAP, UFOs in the last couple of years, people's minds would have been blown. Now they put this stuff out in the news and everybody's like, yeah, so tell us something that we don't know. So it's really been a big, big change. I, yeah. I, I, it, yeah. It, 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 so I want to go back to something you said earlier. I, I think these are connected. 
So you're talking about, you know, so people have one belief or another, right, about whatever it is, and then something happens to that makes them question their beliefs, right? Some some extra you know, uh, paranormal experience. But many of us, if something like we're we're gonna we're gonna do our best to deny it happened, or we're gonna try to explain it in ways that 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 makes sense to us, that sort of cognitive dissonance, to use a psychological term. How do people make that leap? You know, well, you know, from yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the, the, I mean, the main thing is, and I should stress this if I have if I haven't brought it up already, is that you can't jump right to the paranormal as an explanation for things. You have right. to, the, the way we look at it is you have to get rid of everything that's normal first. And then what you're left with is paranormal. You know, mm-hmm. So you, you really have to look at it from all angles and try to explain it away. And unfortunately there's a lot of paranormal investigators out there. And I'll use that term with air quotes who just jump into this and everything's a ghost. Everything's a demon. Everything's something that's, you know, going to harm you or hurt you. And, you know, that's the majority of the things that go on. That's not the case. A majority of them are explainable and people just don't know what to look for to be able to explain it. So I think, I think you got to go through all of those steps first. And then once you get rid of all of that and you're left with something that is unexplainable, you then have to look at it from the perspective of, okay, is it unexplainable just because I don't have enough data? Is it unexplainable just because I can't figure it out? So there's, there's a huge amount of ego that people have when they spend time looking into something. Like they don't want to think that their time is wasted. And that can taint the way that you look at things. You know, if you spent three weeks investigating this supposedly haunted place and things are weird and then you finally understand that they're weird because I don't know, they're having electrical problems or plumbing problems. That's a huge heartbreak for you because you've invested all this time in this and you thought that there was something worth going back for. And it's hard for people to be willing to put that aside. And that's where we run into a lot of problems where people just, they'll jump on things too quickly and then won't change their minds. And, And 20, you know, 15 years ago, it was a lot of peer review. It was a lot of you know, being willing to say, I don't know what this is, so I'm going to throw it out. I can't be sure. I'm going to throw it out. And now it's, we've reached a point where because social media has made this so accept- accessible to people, there's a whole generation of supposed paranormal investigators where if you question what they're telling you that they found and saying, hey, listen, that orb that you say that you saw in a photo, that really just looks like the the camera's flash reflecting mm-hmm. off some moisture that was in the air because it was raining, then you're a bully. You know, you're, you're, you're just jealous because they caught something you didn't catch and you're picking on them and, and you can't tell them that what's going on because you weren't there. So all of that, you know, supposed peer review that we had for decades that was helping to keep some of this in check has gone out the window because the new generation of paranormal investigators care more about getting the reactions from people than actually proving anything. You are listening to In Perspective, and my name is Bob Branco, and my co-host, of course, is Peter Rauchel, and we're talking to Tim Weisberg, producer of Spooky South Coast. We're talking about the paranormal. I would like to, at this time, invite our participants to take part in our discussion, and first what I should do is ask Nancy if there are any hands raised for those who may want to ask Tim a question or two. Anne has her hand raised. Okay, Anne. Hey, um, What's up? hi, oh, hi, Tim. How you doing? Hello. I saw my grandfather next to his coffin when I was five years old. And ever since then, it's kind of been a neat ride for me. So I, I consider myself like an, an un, 
untrained psychic. Have you worked with psychics? Have they helped you solidify any paranormal uh, activity? Can you give us a little bit of information about that? Absolutely. So my, my, my best friend is actually a psychic medium. She is from New Bedford. We work very closely together on a lot of different things. And, you know, I, I did this for years without her. And I learned that, I mean, I, I learned a lot of things about what to do and what not to do from that pseudoscientific perspective. And then when she started getting involved in things, you know, she kind of taught me to teach some of, to, trust some of my instincts on things Mm -hmm. and you know she's very very good about being able to call out the bs that other psychics and mediums might be (laughs) putting out there and so i've learned a lot from her too about like what to look for and what to trust in that regard so it's really been an educational experience and now i you know i i barely would ever do anything without having her be involved in it so it's it's something that goes back to Hans Holzer's time where he would work with a medium mm-hmm. while also trying to do things from a scientific perspective and even Harry Price before him. So I try to follow in those footsteps and, and combine a little bit of the best of both worlds and never really fully trusting either side, but needing both sides to kind of come together to, to, to make it all work. That's cool. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Ann. Can you, I appreciate the comment. Can you give a concrete example of how that works? You know, you know the two sides is it were worked for in a case that you were working on or you were investigating, how, how did that work in, you know, in a, in, a, in a real case, as it were? So for, I mean, one thing, for example, is, you know, we can go into a place and you could spend hours trying to make contact with somebody and nothing happens. You could spend days and nothing could happen. But going in with somebody who has the ability to connect with the other side, like Stephanie does, she can kind of lead you in the right direction. So she can say, hey, I'm picking up on this person and they're telling me this. And so now it almost becomes instead of using the psychic to try to lead the investigators, the investigators can kind of verify and authenticate what it is that the psychic is saying. So it it really kind of makes it for, you know, I would never trust either thing completely on its own either because I, I would never trust... I don't think paranormal activity can happen without some sort of human element to perceive it. So I think that what psychics do are important in that regard. But there are a lot of ones who, there are a lot of them out there who are not doing it right. There are people who just do cold reading because they're doing it as a way to to make a buck. Mm -hmm. There are people who do it because they think that they have abilities, but they don't. There are people who do have abilities that just don't exercise them enough to get good at what they're doing. They're just doing a very low level baseline type of mediumship reading and so they think that that's good enough but i look at it like this you know tom brady was born with an ability to throw the football better than many many people but he also worked hard at it every day to become the absolute best that that anybody's ever seen do it so for him to to take that what he was given that gift and just keep expanding on it that's what a good psychic should do a good medium should do is they should take that gift that talent that they have and just keep working it and I do think that we all have some abilities to some degree, but for some reason they, they have it stronger than us. And, you know, people say, well, if you, you should be able to get as good as they are then. I don't think so. I could throw football every day and learn from the best and I would never be Tom Brady. So it's, there's got to be some degree of natural gift, natural talent, and then, you know, a lot of hard work that goes into it. Do you think that, that some ethnic groups have this, 
this gift, as it were, more strongly than other groups. I'm thinking my a friend of mine I had a, was partly, he's partly Native American, and she would always say, you know, I get this sort of gift through that heritage. Is there any sort of truth to that? I think that it's more because there, you have cultures where they don't put roadblocks up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, when I, I think a lot, of, I think every kid probably has the ability to perceive these things. And then at some point they tell their parents how there's somebody standing in their bedroom and they can't go to sleep because the man standing in the bedroom won't leave them alone. And then your parents come in and tell you, no, there's no such thing. There's nobody there. And they put that roadblock in. They say, you know, there's no such thing as ghosts. You're not seeing ghosts. There's, there's nobody there. And so then you're like, okay, there's nobody there. And the more that you ignore that, the more it kind of deadens. So why do some people so, see them and not others? I think some people just have a natural ability to perceive it more than others. Yeah. So they, they, they're born with that, that honed in sense, whereas other people might have to work at it. And, you know, children, I think have that until we tell them not to have it anymore. And some families choose not to tell their children about that. Some, some parents might walk in and especially nowadays where the parent almost becomes so prevalent, they might walk into the room when the child says, I see some man standing in there and they might say, well, okay, well, tell me what he looks like. And what is he saying to you? Okay. Well, you know what? I think that that's actually your grandfather who passed away before you were born. Ask him if his name is Fred. Oh, his name is Fred. Yes. That's your grandfather. Like, so there's, I think there's some families that encourage it, encourage it and, and some cultures that encourage it. So you'll see people that are tuned into it more as opposed to those who just cut off that communication at a young age and then might want to try to get it back later on and have to work harder at it. Nancy, do we have any hands raised? We do. We have a few. Oh, good. Okay. Tony. Tony. All right, Tony, you are next. I am Welcome. Here. Yes. Tim, I'm just wondering whether you have ever talked yeah, to theologians or any, anyone that would relate the paranormal phenomena to something that many, many religions have believed in and pre-religions namely the soul, and have they ever connected those two in any conceptual way, the the paranormal and the possible existence of the soul? Sure. There are many who feel that the existence of ghosts themselves are proof of the soul, that it is, that's exactly what we're dealing with, is that a ghost is a, a disembodied soul. And I don't know that I believe in all of that part of it because I think there's a lot of other explanations that, that enter into ghosts. Everything from, like I said, those energetic psychological imprints to sometimes we can create these things with our own minds and we can influence the environment ourselves and kind of mistakenly think that there is a third party that's doing it instead. So I think that what we're learning is that there's a lot of different definitions and explanations for what this could be. And one of them could be that it is the soul. But then, you know, my question is if the soul is what, what we think it is and it's what it's described as being, what purpose would it have for not moving on as it's supposed to? Uh, I don't know that I, yeah, but I don't know if I believe in that though, because I think, I honestly think that if these things are interacting with us and they are dead people, they're doing it because they choose to do it. It's, they've got the free will to want to come back and manipulate it. So when people come and they tell me, oh, I can move spirits on. If there's a spirit that's stuck here, I can move them on. I say, well, do you really move them on or do they just take the hint? 
Do they say, oh, these people don't want me around. I'm going to stop bothering them. I'll wait a hundred years until somebody else is living in this house. And then I can start talking to them because, you know, it's not like time matters when you're, when you're a ghost. So I think that there's probably some degree of choice with these ghosts to hang around and to want to be part of this or whether or not they want to listen to what the living are asking and, and, and leave them alone for a while. All right. Tony, thank you very much. Who's next, Nancy? You see. You see. Okay. Yes. I'm, I, I'm with Anne. I've had good experiences with mediums. I mean, really true things, but that's not my question. My question was, I'm older than you, and I remember in college, everyone was talking about J.B. Ryan from Duke University. So paranormal studies have been going on a long time, right? And you're right. Now everyone thinks they're an expert. (laughs) Right. And so that's actually, first of all, the term expert is a loaded term in the paranormal. People don't like it when you use that term because they say, we don't know what what this stuff is, so how can you be an expert in it? And I actually do push back on that a little bit because I think you can be an expert in the theory, you can be an expert in the common beliefs and in the history of it. So when somebody says to me, how can you be an expert in something that we don't know is legitimately exists? I say, well, how can you call a theologian an expert? You know, because you can't prove to me that those things are real. So you're just giving them the credit as being somebody who knows and understands the history and all of the, you know, in the intricacies of it. And I look at paranormal people as doing the same, but in terms of the study of it, I mean, yeah, the Ryan Institute, JB Ryan has certainly helped with getting it on the educational map, but the real scientific study of this goes all the way back into the 1850s. And when the Fox sisters started getting these knockings happening in their cabin in Hydesville, New York, of course there was somebody right away to try to debunk what it is that they were doing. And you had things like the ghost club and the society for cyclical research starting you know, as early as the, the mid-1800s that are still in existence today. I'm actually a member of the Ghost Club. It's a mm-hmm. super exclusive club that only selects a handful of people to join, and I'm honored to be... I'm just kidding. All you have to do is send them 35 bucks, and they send you a membership card. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you, UC. And next up... Beth. All right. Hi, Beth. Hello. There he is. I agree with you. I think different cultures, different families, and different people like that have different perspectives because this house where I used to live in, in Albuquerque, stuff used to happen there. I mean, like really off the wall stuff. And then a friend of mine told us that they built that place on, on an old burial ground. I live in New Mexico, by the way. And that could be right because it was right close to a church where they built that complex, right close to a Catholic church. You know how they used to have the old churchyards? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so, yeah, stuff used to, and my cat used to see stuff. I, she would wake up in the middle of the night hissing at stuff, and we didn't know at first that there was something there, but she did. She was very perceptive at that. Well, because nobody tells animals that these things don't exist, so they they have no reason not to believe right. in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it yep. true? How, or let me say, ask question this way: To what extent is it true that that ghosts or whatever term you want to use are more likely if if you're building near a church or on a great or former graveyard? I mean, do ghosts congregate in places like that, or can they be anywhere? I honestly think that they're anywhere and everywhere, and I mm-hmm. think that the, there are certain places where we can perceive them better. 
And so they might flock to some of those places. So you might be dealing with a ghost in your house that you think is somebody that lived there, you know, a hundred years ago, but it could be somebody who has no relation to the property at all, but they just realize that there's somebody here that they can interact with. I think that also part of it is, you know, when you look at, you find out that a place is built on, on, on tribal land or a burial ground or a consecrated ground or something. And it enters into your mind, the possibility that there might be something there. So you become more alert Mm -hmm. and paying attention to what's around you. When, if you didn't know that, you know, you might not be as perceptive to it. So it's all in how much you're willing to open the door for it to come in. If you will open the door just a little bit, just a crack, the paranormal will usually stick its foot in and then push it open a little bit further. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Beth. All right. Anyone else, Nancy? Not at this time. All right. Interrupt us if somebody does. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I, I'm curious to your reaction of, of an experience I had about 15 years ago. A friend of mine was having mental illness issues, and we had to get her to the hospital, and we, we got her there, and she clearly wasn't in her sort of right mind as it were. She was saying things that didn't make any sense, but I had this sense being with this friend that there was something, this wasn't just a, a sort of a psychiatric issue or whatever. This, there's something, there was a spirit that felt evil to me. And so, so I was singing actually a Stephen Sondheim tune of all things to sort of, to, to calm, to calm down my friend and she also, when we talked about it later, said she felt something similar. There was something there. How would you react to a story like that? You know, if you, you know, a scientist would say, you know, that's just the mental illness talking, you know, the brain chemistry doing, doing things and, you know, and suggestion. And I can see a theologian saying, yeah, well, the evil spirits exist. That could have very well happened. How do you sort of react to a story like that? I think it can be a little bit of both that when you are in a compromised state like that, you become more susceptible to something taking advantage of you. So if you are not full use of your faculties, if you are somehow unguarded, you know, that you've, you've somehow let your guard down, that can open the door for something to want to come in and have influence over you. It could also be too that something was having that influence over you for a long period of time and slowly wearing away at your barriers that you might have had put up to stop that kind of thing from happening. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, mental illness can be explained away by it being something paranormal, but I do think that you can have instances where the two things can happen. Now, obviously, too, sometimes you have people who are having mental episodes that will turn to things that they might not normally believe. So that means they might talk about ghosts and spirits when they normally wouldn't be somebody that would believe in it. Or it might be something that they do believe in, and now they've just become convinced that that's what it is. So it's really like no no paranormal experience can exist completely independent from the minds that are perceiving it. Mm-hmm. So that that mind being compromised in some way or, or being affected in some way by something else can have an effect on the way that it's being perceived, too. And you do have another hand. Okay. Leonard. All right. Hi, Leonard. You're next. Welcome. Oh, you muted Leonard still. Leonard. Can you hear me now? Now we can. Yes. Yes. Yeah. This has been alluded to by a former participant, but do animals have the ability sometimes to see what we can't see? And I'm talking primarily about ghosts or, 
or not necessarily just ghosts, but just paranormal phenomenon? They do, and for a couple of reasons. One is because, like I was saying before, they're not ever told that these things don't exist, so they don't have a reason to be dismissive of things that they might experience. But also, a lot of animals have different visual sense than we do, or different you know, just any any different type of perception than we do. So it could be that they can smell something that we might not smell. They can hear things that we might not be able to hear because they have increased hearing, and a lot of this stuff happens in the infrasound that we can't hear with our own ears. But another big reason for it is many animals can see further into the infrared spectrum than we do. Our eyes are actually, amongst, you know, mammals for sure, our eyesight is actually not the best. <laughs> we're not even really close to being in the upper echelon of, of eyesight when it comes to mammals. So for us, we're already limited in how much into the infrared spectrum we can see. And we think that a lot of these things that we are perceiving are coming from, they're, they're existing in that infrared area of the, the light spectrum. That's why we use infrared cameras, infrared lights, things like that to try to help and help us with our eyes be able to see into that portion of the spectrum, whereas the animals can see that. So they will literally see something that we cannot see. Yeah, thank you. I, I've actually had experiences like that with animals that I've had or have heard of other people that have had animals that have had that, those kind of experiences. We have about three more minutes, so we have time for maybe one more participant. Otherwise, Peter and I would continue to talk for a little while. Okay, we have one hand. Tony. Oh, Tony. Okay. A repeat performance. Tim, this time I have a different profession to ask you. Have you, have you ever spoken with, you know, cosmologists who suggest alternate dimensions in the universe, things that are theorized, but that we, you know, don't have a whole lot of evidence about that might be part of the realm in which these, uh, these paranormal phenomena are also existing. So a, a quantum a quantum explanation for this is something that I've really kind of honed in on for a lot of these types of activities that we could be seeing into another time. We could be seeing into another dimension. And I talk about that in some of my paranormal presentations, and I can see the faces on people just kind of be like, what? What are you talking about? So I, I know that it's something that we've, we've got to get to the point where we can really get people to wrap their heads around that idea. But I have talked to, you know, it's funny you mentioned cosmologists. I've, I've actually had the good fortune to interview Neil deGrasse Tyson on two different occasions. And both times we ended up in an argument about whether or not ghosts exist. So <laughs> he's not willing to believe any of it. He has said that if I can, you know, make a ghost appear before him or make it manipulate something in front of him, he might be willing to change his mind. But we've gone back and forth about this because he doesn't think that what we think that a ghost is is possible. But yet he he does think that there are other possibilities within the universe that could be physics that aren't what we know. I mean, everybody likes to say, you know, no, no, we understand physics. Physics is the same across the universe. He seems to at least be willing to say there's possibilities where that might not be 100% the, the truth. And we, you can't believe in a black hole and, and also believe that physics are a hard and rigid thing. So right. I think that he's willing to come through and, and, and say that there's some possibility. He just doesn't want to go as far as to say that he believes that ghosts could be possible. But I'm impressed you actually got to talk to him more than once. That's really, really cool. It is cool. The coolest part was when I when I called him on the phone to start the interview, and, and I said, hello, Dr. Tyson. And he said, oh, please, call me Neil. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so on a first-name basis now, yeah. 
And it was downhill from there, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Once once we got into the ghost stuff, I was like, I don't think he's coming back. But then he did. So, <laughs> Thank so you. What, what, one quick question for you. Uh, the whole cosmology thing reminds me of UFOs. What are your how did how does UFO UFOs fit into all of this, if at all? I think that they do play a part. I don't know that I've made up my mind on what they are. I actually agree with with Neil about whether or not you know we we probably don't have these things visiting us from other planets. The the sheer size and vastness of space would eliminate there being a biological entity the way that we understand biology to work being able to get here. But at the same time, I also believe in the idea that we can't be the only ones out there. So I think we, I think when people experience UFOs, they are experiencing something real. They are seeing something and interacting with something. I just don't know that we can explain it as being beings from another planet. We are out of time, Tim, unfortunately. So before you leave us, tell us how we can find or how can anyone find Spooky South Coast online? Because a lot of us don't live around here, but we would like to sure. tap into the show, those of us who can. Well, even if you don't live locally, you can still catch it live Saturday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern on the WBSM app or on the WBSM.com stream. But if you can't listen to it live, we podcast all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We're everywhere, and we've got oh, actually 665 episodes up there. So you got a lot to get caught all up right. with before the next Very one good. tomorrow night. Before Excellent. you go, it's a WBCM or N? BSM. B as in boy, S as in Sam, M as in Mary. WBSM. Thanks for that. Tim, thank you very much for being guest today. We appreciate you coming on and keep up the work that you do. And hopefully uh, we'll have you back at some point. Next week, we're going to have a discussion about climate change. That ought to be interesting. We have two sides of that conversation already at work. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Peter and, of course, Tim, Nancy, thank you for taking the time. Go safe with God's abundant blessings, everyone. Have a great week. We'll talk next week. Thank you.